Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This week, a conversation about the British royal family with Laura Clancy, who is a lecturer in media in the sociology department at Lancaster University. Last autumn, I spoke to Laura shortly after Manchester University Press published her book, Running the Family Firm, How the Royal Family Manages Its Image and Our Money. Laura's subtitle makes clear she's not just interested in the image side, how the royals are portrayed in the media. She also wants to follow the money and look at the relationship between monarchy, power, capital and inequality. Laura opens her book by recounting an incident at the gym in October 2018 when she overheard a woman say, I hate it when people moan about how much money royal weddings cost. This country has more important problems to worry about. The wedding in question was Princess Eugenie's. It was held at Windsor Castle, paid for largely by the Sovereign Grant and broadcast live on ITV. There was plenty of press attention, but overall much less hoopla than for the weddings of Prince William and Kate Middleton, or Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Laura often encounters the response that the country has more important things to worry about when she tells people she's researching the royal family. Plus the associated response is that they don't cost that much, that they're good for the country, or ultimately, that they don't really matter. For a lot of Britons, they just are. A bit like the weather. Laura disagrees. She writes... We cannot talk about inequalities in Britain without talking about the monarchy. Her book argues that the principles by which monarchy works are key principles by which the whole system works. And in understanding monarchy, we can begin to make sense of the system. So much writing on the royal family is just about the image that Laura's book was refreshing because it showed that there's much more to it than that. Put one family at the apex of the pyramid by hereditary right, and it's bound to shape expectations of what's right, what's permissible, who's permissible below that. It helps keep the whole pyramid in place. But none of that would be possible without the image. So that's where we started our conversation, with a key moment in royal history. The Queen's coronation in 1953 the first royal ceremony to be televised live. The challenge for those managing the broadcast was to convey mystery and majesty without dispelling magic. The public had to feel that they had been granted privileged access, but not allowed to get too close. A degree of intimacy, but not too much. It's a recurrent challenge. So I think, I mean, the first thing I think we should say is that, you know, royals have been mediated for as long as they've existed. So things like coins and portraiture, that's always been a way of of mediating royalty. I think what we see with mass media technologies is that process is complicated because it's not as static, for want of a better word, as a portrait or a coin is. There's kind of a greater degree of intimacy And my argument around the coronation in particular is that this is the first time we see live television being used. And live television has a very particular connotation of intimacy that I think other kind of film reels or radio shows don't necessarily have. And she puts on the great golden mantle, the imperial robe. Receive this imperial robe. The Lord your God endue you with knowledge and wisdom 
with majesty and with power from on high. The Lord clothe you with the robe of righteousness and with the garments of salvation. So I think the debate was around that and it was very controversial at the time of people saying that it would kind of damage the majesty of monarchy too far, it would give people too much access. Obviously, of course, it went ahead and it was a big success, but I think this was a moment of reckoning um, for them in which they're kind of engaging with these new media technologies that allowed the public much more access than they'd ever had to monarchy. Even just the close-ups, there were so many, when you look at the archives, there were so many debates around should we or should we not have close-ups of the Queen? Because that, you know, it's almost too intimate. It's it's shown as too much. I mean, obviously, since then media has developed beyond what they could ever have imagined at that point. And I think the queen, this queen has really been the one who's seen the greatest change in terms of media technologies and media platforms. And I think the coronation demonstrated that's something they need to engage with. And I think particularly if you think now in terms of the types of media that different people engage with, I'm thinking generationally, but I'm sure also other reasons, young people are getting information from social media and if you want to have a new generation of royalists you're going to have to engage with that otherwise you're not going to be able to get in touch with them so I think you know we can see various moments from the coronation onwards where they've kind of have these moments of reckoning with these technologies and it's either a success or in some cases a, a failure so in the 60s there was the documentary called Royal Family where it was like a fly on the wall documentary and the cameras followed the round for a year and then it was edited together into a documentary for the, I think it was for BBC and ITV. It was like a joint project. And again, that it was the, the viewing figures for that were huge. Like it was really popular. And then since then, all that footage has been redacted and you can't get access to it anywhere. I've really tried and you just can't. It's just impossible because the rumours are around why it was redacted is because it gave too much access. It was kind of, it, it, broke that visibility invisibility balance down too far because they couldn't maintain that majesty because it was too intimate during the year the queen will be seen by millions indeed part of the job is to be seen and she and her dresser are already planning many months ahead dresses and coats i would have thought for um, the state visit to austria this might be very useful because it's got a, a wool coat and in may one one never knows does one Really? And I think you can also see that with like Diana. I think Diana really fractured that in various ways, how kind of she was very much kind of talking about a feeling. She did that panorama interview, of course, which really fractured that. And then social media does that in a slightly new way. I think though social media is an interesting example because it's not as though they each have their own individual Instagram accounts. It's not as though kind of, you know, Kate Middleton is posting whatever she wants. These are run by the institution. They give a degree of intimacy because we kind of see family photos, but they're very much staged and it's very much run for a particular institutional purpose. But it gives that veil of intimacy that I think audiences want. So actually, I wonder if social media is kind of where they found their groove because (laughs) they can have that control whilst suggesting that there is a form of intimacy there. There's a lovely bit in your book where you contrast the moment in the coronation where the queen is anointed, which, which is kind of like the most symbolically significant, almost mystical aspect. And the cameras have to cut to, you know, architectural detail because it's, that's felt to be too intimate. The queen, risen from prayer, is disrobed of her crimson robe. She goes to King Edward's chair and 
four knights of the garter bring and hold over her a canopy of cloth of gold. It is the moment of the anointing, the hallowing, a moment so old, history can scarcely go deep enough to contain it. The hallowing, the sacred, the spirit cleansed, as in the east the body was anointed and made clean. The queen anointed, blessed, and consecrated. But you contrast that with the moment in the royal family documentary in the 60s, where the Queen is shown making a salad, and you say in some ways, I think, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a greater risk in showing the Queen making a salad than showing her being, you know, anointed in the Abbey. Oh, what have you done there? Here we go. Oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> what have you cut there? I cut the lettuce, but there's Nico, Oily. Too oily. Mm. More than a bit. They're all out coming. There's a lot of meat cooking. Very little happening to them. The salad is ready. Good. I guess what's happening there is the magic is being removed, isn't it? You're seeing, you know, you, if you're seeing her in every, everyday setting, you know, t- talking in the trivial way that we have to imagine she does talk when when she's at a barbecue, the magic is is beginning to come off, isn't it? And I thought it was really interesting because the, there was a great deal of worry about, about you know, both of those things. But in a way, the salad is, is the greater risk to the, um, the establishment. Yeah, but I think what's really interesting is there's less than 20 years between those two things. That really demonstrates, you know, the extent to which the media and our relationship with media changed, I think, in those few years when more and more people were getting television sets, there were more and more choices of programmes. You know, technologies were developing that meant we could do things like fly on the wall documentaries. It wasn't such a big deal to, you know, film things. And I suppose, our, you know, reflecting changes in relationship to the state and to the, to the institution of monarchy, because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, in the 60s, there was a lot of kind of, discomfort with the monarchy actually that might have you know there's a lot of debates about whether that reflects kind of you know the swinging 60s and changing political attitudes and things like this but for that to be less than 20 years I think is quite remarkable actually and it really shows the state of not just the development of media technologies but also the development with which our relationship with the monarchy altered and thus perhaps like our relationship with the state and you know British conceptualizations of national identity and all of those things like to have that such a change in that short time is, is quite something. It's remarkable. You know, you're saying you couldn't get a hold of a copy because they've all been withdrawn. And you're talking about the redacted version of the edit, which had the the palace's approval. And then all the other hours of 40 odd hours of material, which were filmed, also not available. And we have to presume there's nothing particularly incendiary there, apart from showing an ordinary family behaving like an ordinary family. So if we were describing this in another country, we'd say, isn't that amazing that in the modern period, there's such, you know, such sensitivity that they don't even let some fly in the wall footage shot, you know, decades ago be shown. What, what, is, what is it about this, this nation that causes such, you know, anxiety about that? And yet, you know, here we are. And all these years on is still felt to be too, 
too sensitive to um to be put in the public domain yeah and i mean it's quite incredible as well in the age of the internet that they have managed to do that like they've managed to redact it and that it hasn't it did resurface re- uh, recently i think a few months ago briefly on youtube i didn't get to see it. i was too slow um and then it was deleted again so like the fact that they can manage that i think is is also quite quite telling for you know their, their relationship with media institutions as well and how they can control that kind of information so if that's if that's the family aspect of the royal family, which is one of the sort of themes of the book that you know they they present as a family in 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 various ways, the other aspect, the sort of less um, overt characterization, is as a firm. And I guess before reading your book, I'd thought of that just as a sort of slightly obnoxious uh, nickname they applied to themselves, <laughs> but and other people applied to them in a sort of chummy way. You know the way that people say Buckhouse that always annoys me too, but. Um, but you take that a lot further and think about the implications of what being a firm is. So I wonder if you could say where you take that and why you think why you think it's worth regarding it as more than just a sort of flippant nickname. Mm. Well, I kind of played with various different versions of the name. I knew I kind of needed a name to describe them as a corporation. I played with like, you know, Buckingham Palace with like a trademark label and stuff and played with all these various versions because they also call it the palace and they kind of use that as a, quite an official name as well. I think what the firm does in a really quite succinct way is gets at this kind of play on family versus corporation. So the other nickname is the family firm, um, and that kind of does both of those things at the same time. So how I how I chose to use that was to take that description literally, and in the book I kind of trace the etymology of this term firm and how that links to corporate power and how that links to the development of corporations and all of these things. So I then use that to describe the ways in which we can think about the monarchy as similar to or operating in similar ways to global corporations. So part of my argument is that we can see this throughout history. So how monarchs might have got involved in like patent laws and copyright laws and how that might have kind of got the money in the past, how they funded colonial voyages, right? So how they kind of got money from, you know, colonial conquest, and I kind of argue that this development of capitalism is the monarchies developed alongside that development of capitalism. So, that, you know, they, they moved into like when racial capitalism and colonialism was kind of the, the main way in which people were becoming very rich. They, they joined in with that. And then, you know, so how we can kind of map this history of the monarchy maintaining their wealth through the kind of dominant economic model within society. So I kind of use this term, the firm, to get at that history, but also to get at the way it operates today. Um, and I kind of open with the Paradise Papers. So I think that's probably the most obvious way that we can kind of get at this argument that, you know, in the Paradise Papers, the Duchy of Lancaster was found to be putting money in tax havens in order to avoid paying more tax. And in exactly the same papers were people like Apple and Nike, who were also doing exactly the same thing. So a really obvious way that we can see how they're kind of using the tactics of global corporations in order to reproduce their own wealth in this particular moment of transnational, you know, transnational wealth. That was an aspect I was you know, pretty ignorant of, I think, until the Paradise Papers and then reading about it in more detail of, of your book. I guess I guess if you were to stop people in the street and 
and ask them about the royal family and how they make money, a lot of them would think about Prince Charles and his shortbread. And that sort of, and that, in a way, that also plays into the theme of your book, doesn't it? Because that is a kind of homely, heritage, wholesome, grounded in, you know, soil and, and, and terroir kind of way of, of making money. And it's not about international financialization. And I'm not suggesting he's making shortbread as a smokescreen, but it is quite a convenient perception for people to have in their minds when they go to Waitrose they sort of they sort of see all these lovely wholesome organic expensive products and they don't they don't think about the Panama Papers. No right and it's kind of respectable types of wealth which is what they want to show and you know we can see that even if we go back to like Victorian industrialists you know they were seen as kind of vulgar forms of, of capital that people didn't want to be associated with whereas aristocrats were seen as more respectable forms of capital. And obviously that exact split isn't the case now, but I think we can still see where it's like respectable forms of wealth versus not respectable and how the monarchy might be playing into that. I mean, I think even if you think of something like the Crown Estate or the Duchess, and that's very historical land ownership. It's gone over thousands of years, a lot of that. And it's kind of presented in that way, in a weird way, because it's like caught up in kind of histories of Britain and you know, it's kind of narrated as quite an, like about heritage and history. But then it's organised as like a global pro- property portfolio. That's essentially what it is. Like the amount that they've kind of bought and own and the land that they develop and they, they create properties and they rent them out and they create business space. And it, it's run like any other global property business. But it's veiled, mainly, maybe because of the name. I don't really know why, but, you know, it's veiled in these ideas of history and heritage that, again, is very useful because it kind of avoids that conversation around, well, first of all, it avoids the conversation around how did you get that land in the first place? <laughs> but also it avoids the conversation around how you might be operating similarly to, you know, global people buying and gentrifying property all around the world. To what extent... Do they benefit from special dispensations when it comes to making money? Obviously, they have an advantage in being who they are, but what legal advantages or sort of unwritten advantages would you say they have when it comes to sort of maximising the value of what they what they do? There's a lot of ways in which they're kind of not legally obliged to pay certain taxes. So in 1992, when there was the fire at Windsor Castle, it was going to be that the public taxes would pay for the repairs. That was how it was reported in the media. And there's quite a lot of public outcry about that. So what they said is they would pay voluntary income tax in order to kind of quieten some of that protest, essentially, and kind of keep people happy. So there's, there's no legal obligation to do that. And I think that's something very different because, you know, it's essentially saying, OK, we'll pay whatever we want and that'll keep people happy. But there's, you know, there's no... It's not actually accountable for, right? It's not actually, there's no way of actually, you know, calculating that legally. And there are kind of various taxes that particularly the monarch is not um, legally obliged to pay. There's also things in the way that um, that is reported. So I think looking at the kind of their, their reports on finances are particularly interesting. So they kind of have this, you know, they have this key pot of money that they get from the sovereign grant, which they declare. And that is kind of quoted as how much monarchy costs. But then when you actually look into it, you know, things like security are paid for by a different government department. So that doesn't count into those into, into that calculation. 
And then there's other subsidies and things that they get that will be on the, the next page or a few pages later. So actually that original figure that they quote, which isn't, it's not inaccurate because yes, that is what's coming from the sovereign grant. But there are these other things that are not commonly written about that's also going into to what they earn. So I think, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of unwritten ways in which wealth is hidden but it also is a way to reproduce wealth because you're kind of not being held accountable for having it therefore there's not as many questions about what you do with it and those kind of things so just kind of these very subtle ways that these might be written I think and spoken about. Now I bet when you talk to royalists about this book they say something to you along the lines of oh they cost every Briton only 60 pence a year and they work hard and they do a lot for British business and they do a lot for British tourism. So why don't you just lay off because they're basically a good thing? And would you like to be in the position of having a President Boris? I bet, I'm, I bet you know, when you, when, you, when you step outside and say what you're doing, that you must have heard all of those things. How do you respond? Regarding the money things, I would point listeners towards Republic, who have done some really interesting work on debunking a lot of those myths. In terms of what I've said around the money, so yes, they get a certain amount from the sovereign grant, which is often what that the Royals cost 60p is calculated from. But then there's all of these other hidden costs that are not calculated into that. As Republic also talk a lot about, you know, how if Buckingham Palace was publicly owned, the public would be getting the money for, you know, visitors and things, and it could be open all year round and all of these things. So there's a lot of money that's in their assets that would be public if they didn't exist. So I think that's the first argument. The other thing to say is, so people saying, well, you don't want a President Nigel Farage. That's the one I always seem to get. Um, I think... Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's really hardcore. I know, which is true. I, I wouldn't want a Nigel Farage. I'm not disputing no, that. No, no, but I'm, I, was, I was thinking Boris, but you think yeah. even worse. No. Uh, yeah, no. Well, is he? Is he worse, though? <laughs> I'm not sure anymore. Boris is so awful. No, but, I, I, no. I, uh, yes, that's that's another debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit off topic, but you know. Um, but I think part of the discussion around you know not wanting a, a President Nigel Farage is around just the general misunderstanding about what Republicanism might look like. And I'm not talking about ignorance. I don't mean that. I mean that it's just not spoken about, right? So we're never presented in Britain with like a document that says. This is what this might look like. Here's option one. Here's option two. Here's option three. No one's doing that. And no one really would understand what that might look like or what that might give people or what that might do to the state or what that might do to our legal understandings of land. You know, all of these different things that will be implicated in that. And that's it's just not, we're just not told about it. So how would people know? And again, I think that's, it's very useful, right? Because if people don't have the knowledge, they can't then question it at the level that it would need to be questioned in order for republicanism to take hold. Think about the way that Jeremy Corbyn was talked about when he talked about republicanism. He was absolutely, it was mocked in the mainstream press. It was awful because it was so unthinkable that anybody could possibly take this as a serious political position. And, you know, no mainstream political party has had republicanism in their manifesto because it's just not widely understood as a as a worthwhile position to take because they think people won't support it. So I think, you know, a general lack of discussion and understanding around that is is really central to why those debates happen and why kind of those that dismissal of republicanism might happen. 
Yeah. I was shocked and disappointed when in the Scottish referendum campaign, the SNP argued for a retention of the monarch. I thought that was, that was a great opportunity. But clearly, clearly, they, clearly they, you know, I guess they, they read the polls and they knew that that would alienate a significant, maybe even a majority of, um, of people that they hoped would vote for independence. But, you know, that seemed like a, a chance missed. But that's, that's maybe it was too, too easy to, um, to feel like that, but not actually recognise the sort of pragmatic politics of it. You know, as you say, it does seem to be unthinkable for a lot of people, you know, and therefore ridiculous. I think so. And I don't think that means necessarily. So I would argue that it does, I don't think everybody loves the Queen. Everybody loves the monarchy. I mean, some people do, obviously. But I think generally there's just kind of a like an apathy around it. Like there's just kind of a, it is what it is. And an inevitability almost. Yeah. It's like, well, most people alive today, you know, the majority of the population have always known the Queen to be the Queen. That's how, that's how they've grown up and how they've, they've lived all their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why when the Queen goes, I think that will be quite an interesting moment. And I'm certainly not suggesting I think there'll suddenly be a call for republicanism. I actually don't think there will. But I think, as you said, you know, when that's all people have known, that's all the vast majority of people have known, that will be a real moment, I think, in Britain when we... First, well, first of all, it'll be a moment of, I think, you know, extreme displays of national identity and all of those things. And I think it'll be for people who are sceptical of those things, it'll be pretty unbearable. But I think it will also be like a moment of kind of where we're kind of forced to ask those questions. We're forced, you know, if we're watching the coronation of King Charles, you're kind of forced to ask the question, why are we watching this and what's the purpose of this? And that's something the monarchy haven't had to deal with for a really long time. And it's something that they haven't had to deal with in an age of social media, right? In an age of kind of growing leftist, you know, democratic politics that we're seeing at the moment. The diversification of media in terms of our diversification of voices in independent media publications and so on. So I think... I mean, I think it'll be fascinating, that moment, in terms of what what kind of debates will happen and if that will go into the mainstream or not and all of those things. I do want to get on to Charles, but before we leave the Queen, the other thing which you must hear from royalists is, oh, the Queen is wonderful because she's apolitical. Now, there are things in your book which which suggest a corrective to that. And things in the, in the media in, in recent months have suggested, you know, that she is far from apolitical. But what how do you counter that that sort of suggestion that she sort of floats above the political sphere and is is there as sort of a wise a wise listener but who never shows her hand recently kind of the the guardians things on the queen's consent have been particularly interesting in terms of what they've shown in terms of lobbying but i think i think there's a big difference between apolitical and politically neutral for one and i think there's a big difference in what causes you promote and what causes you don't and how that happens so, for instance, the monarchy of, you know, often promoted environmentalism, which is great, right? We need loud public voices talking about those issues in order for it to go mainstream. I'm certainly not saying that's not the case. But when you look at kind of how they operate, they operate in the very opposite of kind of environmental culture. So I think there's a difference between, you know, this political neutrality in terms of not being... It's about party political neutrality, I think. So it's kind of not supporting a political party, not necessarily not supporting particular political movements or not. And I also think silence isn't necessarily being neutral. Silence can be complicity. And I think on particular issues that that's, you know, they've been silent on kind of various issues recently, I'm thinking in particular around race. And I think there's a big difference there in political neutrality versus kind of not 
you know, not wanting to disturb the status quo and kind of not wanting to call these things out. And of course, there's a legal obligation for the Queen to be politically neutral, but the, the Queen's consent papers demonstrate that that's not true. And there's also all sorts of rumours about whether she supports Brexit and all of these things, which are inevitable. I kind of think it's a bit irrelevant whether she does or not, but the way in which her image is used in them, I think, is interesting. In the book, I have a chapter about the Scottish referendum um, and how she was allegedly very pleased when the kind of it didn't happen. And I talk about how her image of as the Queen of Scots, as the Daily Telegraph put it on the day after the referendum, is kind of meant to be a way of bringing the countries back together. And she's meant to be this unifying image. So the, the way in which her image is used for political purposes, I think, is another really interesting way of thinking about it. So yes, we don't know what political party we should, which she supports, but we can certainly gather from the kind of things that they promote what ideologies they might support. Even the fact that they work with various corporations, they're obviously not socialist. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's ways in which we can kind of make those assumptions. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think... That, that had always been my guess. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think that's maybe probably. They probably weren't. <laughs> yeah, so I think, those, I think those debates are quite interesting. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a really interesting chapter where you go to visit Poundbury, the... Prince of Wales model village in Dorset and I'm guessing that anybody who's listened to this conversation this far probably is not a dyed-in-the-wool royalist and well I I mean perhaps there are and that's very good and I think it's good to encourage engagement but presuming they're not they probably haven't been to Poundbury and maybe know a little bit about it so in my notes, I write down electricity substation disguised as Greek temple exclamation mark. So it is it is quite a place. So I wonder if you can say what it was like visiting it, what you found there. And also, I guess, going beyond that, what you what you think it says about the the tenor of the um, the reign of King Charles III when we get there. Sure. I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is my favourite chapter. Um, and um, people kind of don't want to talk. They want to talk about Meghan and they want to talk about Kate and they don't want to talk about this. And I actually think this is like the most interesting stuff. So Poundbury, for people who are unaware, is an extension um, to the town of Dorchester. And the land was owned by the Duchy of Cornwall. And it was released to um, Dorchester to build... Originally, it was meant to be building more affordable housing, but it was released on the agreement that Charles could kind of be involved in the architecture of that space. So he employed a new urbanist architecture, um, which is kind of a very you know, particular architectural ideology to design this space. So I cannot recommend going enough to people. It's pretty incredible. I kind of, I'd read a lot about it before I went and I was still quite amazed by what it's like. So the new urbanist architecture is kind of, it's essentially kind of suggesting, you know, they don't, they don't like car use. They kind of like buildings to be quite uniform. There are particular ways in which kind of historical buildings are meant to be much more attractive than more modern buildings. But of course, they're built using modern building techniques and modern designers and all of those things. 
there's ways in which they kind of, they prioritise what they call zoning. So they don't approve of what we often see now in new towns, Milton Keynes, for example, where you kind of have, you know, the suburban housing estates and then you kind of have shopping centres and stuff where all the shops would be and, you know, zoning between those. The Poundbury shows is kind of more mixed living where you might live next to the shop and you're meant to be able to walk to school and walk to the corner shop and stuff, which you can. That is definitely true. A lot of the problems and a lot of the critiques of this architecture and this kind of approach is that it's a, it's not accessible. So they've, you know, they've dissuaded car use by the way they've kind of built the streets and they don't include parking spaces. The whole of the 20th century has always put the car at the centre. So by putting the pedestrian first, you create these livable places, I think, uh, with more attraction and interest and character and livability. But practically, most people, or a lot of people, rely on a car. So what you'll end up with is just cars parked everywhere because people need to need to use that to get around. They do a lot of kind of aesthetics over use. So the use of gravel on paths, for example, which looks great, but is not in the slightest bit accessible. A lot of decorations that so you mentioned, like an electricity substation, which looks like a Greek temple. And there's plenty of other things of like random gargoyles and stuff around that are decorative. And then the most interesting thing, which I didn't realise until I was there, was this kind of a main square in part of Poundbury where there's kind of a waitrose and there's a pub and there's you know kind of these various like things you would get in a, in a little town centre. And all of the buildings, it was called Queen Mother Square. There's a statue of Queen Mother right in the middle as part of the roundabout. And then the buildings all around, like the waitrose and the pub, are all named after royal things. Um, so I think... I think the where Rachel's is is called like King's Point House. There's a Duchess of Cornwall pub, and so you know and that place is you know the, it's the central place in Poundbury. So my argument is that by making that the central place in Poundbury and making that a royal space, that's kind of suggesting that um, you know Charles understands royalty is like the centre of Britain, um, and how that and how that really centralises those particular ideas. I think what it also does is, you know, I started off by saying Poundbury was meant to be about affordable housing. It's largely not. So the flats in um, one of the buildings in that square, which is very posh, I can't think of the name, but it's named after a royal, are going for like hundreds of thousands of pounds, like way more expensive than you would expect in that area of Dorchester. So actually that hasn't panned out, the idea of affordable housing. And there's a real, it kind of, the, the kind of the class inequalities within that space you know, in terms of building this very expensive area. And that's a convenience store, which I'm very proud of, which everybody said wouldn't work. That's the pub, which, again, nobody wanted to touch. But now, of course, the values are going up and up and up. In terms of the fact there's, like, barriers which um, stop people easily accessing the neighbouring estate because it's not part of Poundbury, so you're kind of creating this barrier between Poundbury as this very special place versus the rest of Dorchester or something entirely different. So, you know, I kind of argue the fact that this is kind of demonstrating that, you know, this very traditional version of class hierarchy, kind of almost like the labourer and the lord, it kind of almost goes, harks back to that kind of idea. And that's really modelled in the way the space is built and the way the space privileges, you know, this idea of privileging walking and privileging all of these things and design over functionality. You know, that's privileging a certain sector of society that is often not the most marginalised people within that society. So I kind of argue it's, you know, modelling those class inequalities. I think you say that they have wealth um, management consultant brokers, you know, have shops there, you know, which is kind of quite telling, isn't it, in a small, in a small Dorset town, if that's... 
you know that that's that's quite it's sort of indicative perhaps of what um what kind of people they they will they they have attracted i suppose it's an idle question to speculate on but i wonder what percentage of the british public would be quite charmed by it yeah i mean it, it is pretty like you cannot you can't dispute that it is like it's you know well, I, the the electric substation is very ugly i have to say to, <laughs> judging by your, judging by your photograph that's an, an abomination but i mean it it the rest of it looks kind of like pastiche i think you compare it to disney world and a, a film set and you you kind of almost expect people to come out their front doors dressed in costume don't you yeah it is and it's very kind of it's very like picturesque very easy without doing anything make it look like it was a picture from 100 years ago because that's what the buildings are like it is you know aesthetically if you're into that kind of architecture it it does do that but I mean the other kind of argument is they make is that you know Charles has been very vocal about being he hates modernist architecture and kind of hates post-war architecture and he's been very vocal about that for a very long time well that's that's what I've been trying to encourage people to think about to break the conventional mold uh, in in the way we've been building and designing for the last, well, during the last century, really, has all been part of a throwaway society. But part of the reason, you know, part of what modernist architecture was doing was kind of trying to create a more equal society in terms of kind of not having, like, hidden basements or hidden lofts where servants lived and kind of, you know, making those relations of production much more visible, making affordable housing, making high-rise flats where people could get out of slums and go and live in, you know, quite, you know, clean and well-built and not damp and all of this. So, you know, part of his kind of, you know, he's talking about that in terms of ugliness, but actually that was like such an incredible moment post-war when people were being moved out of slums and into these, you know, high-rise buildings so to call it ugly is kind of demonstrating his own privilege essentially and kind of you know showing that he didn't have to suffer the slums that those that was there he can just talk about how ugly they are so kind of recreating this version of the past also demonstrates this kind of reproducing of those class hierarchies when people would be working living in slums and more middle class or upper class people might be living in the kind of houses that he's created so championing a particular architectural style and particularly pastiching a style is about much more than just architecture it's about the whole social cultural world that is associated with it and it's kind of a proxy isn't it for, for i guess you know if we, we can read into that quite a lot about how he how he would like the world ideally to be yeah because architecture is so telling to how we organize our social lives and how we organize politically how we organize and you know we can see that now with the lack of council houses being built and the kind of ideologies that this government might promote, right? You know, those things are interconnected. There's so much sort of richness in the later chapters of the book about Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle, and I don't want to just sort of skate over it. And I think really the best thing to do would be for people to to get hold of the book and, and read the detail of it. But maybe, you know, so that we don't completely omit it, maybe one way to talk about it is about the difficulty of leaving the firm. I mean, you, you earlier alluded to Diana and the time when she could be most frank in, a, in an interview was really when she was on, you know, she had she had sort of exited the, the main cast of, of the firm and, and Meghan Markle likewise. But maybe you can say something about that dynamic, about the ways in which both those women kind of tested the firm's capacity to accommodate what they represented and the four, you know, the, the wider forces in the world that they represented, and they they seem the challenge they seem to bring to the firm, and why, you know, for both of them that that ended in in exit. 
So I think what Dana and Megan brought was kind of this new narrative um, in Monica. And I think we can, the most obvious example of that is thinking about that moment of the wedding of Meghan and Harry, when everyone was talking about this as a real turning point. Everyone was talking about how it showed how progressive the monarchy and therefore Britain is, how it showed that Britain was really multicultural and really accepting and all of those things. Which in that moment, you know, and for a particular uh, members of society and people of colour who have never seen themselves represented at that level of society. Of course, it did represent that inclusivity. I'm not disputing that at all. But, you know, the, what's happened since, and I think particularly in the media response to Meghan Markle afterwards, is quite telling for the ways in which status quo very quickly resumed. And suddenly kind of having a woman of colour who challenged a lot of the things that the firm have relied upon historically. So even the fact that she was very publicly feminist, you know, was was kind of very challenging to those norms of patriarchy that the monarchy is built upon. You know, they're literally built upon women reproducing children in order to reproduce an institution. That's how they're made. So Meghan was quite challenging to those things. And my argument is kind of that, you know, they tried to co-opt Meghan into that. You know, there was a real effort to kind of include Megan and include her identity points, including kind of her, you know, political identity points like being a feminist within that, within that institution. But because she was, because she kind of went against the norms of monarchy to such an extent, because she kind of, she couldn't be co-opted quite so easily. And my argument is that what she did is she kind of, by virtue of her identity, and I don't mean this as her as an individual woman, I mean kind of the representations around her, by virtue of how she kind of makes those things visible, it kind of fractured that co-option and it meant that she couldn't be incorporated in quite that same way because she made those things obvious. She made it obvious that the monarchy had this very problematic racial and colonial history. And she made it obvious that the monarchy what had this problem with, with sexism, particularly considering it coincided with Prince Andrew and all of the things that were going on there. So my argument is kind of, you know, there was this attempt at co-option and there was this attempt at using it to become progressive, but actually all it did was make those things more visible because they couldn't contain all of that. They couldn't contain all of that image. I mean, I think her moment of exit is, it's it's shameful for the British media in terms of the fact that they were incredibly racist and sexist towards her. I don't think that's, to me, that's pretty obvious. But I think it also says a lot about that kind of status quo of, of whiteness within the monarchy, the status quo of patriarchy within the monarchy, and the fact that she represented kind of often more progressive politics than they certainly did in terms of, you know, she was quite vocal about being anti-Brexit and um, anti-Trump and all of these things. And it kind of made that, you know, kind of drew light on that as well. And when Harry and Meghan announced that they wanted a more sort of semi-detached relationship with the firm, did you think this is not going to hold, this is going to come to grief? Or did you think, ah, here is a new model that might be, that might be emerging, this may be what contributes to the evolution of the royal family into the you know in the 21st century or did you see that the tensions were just you know they wouldn't hold well I mean I think part of it was the fact that the damage had already been done in the media and the way they talk they'd kind of spoken about Megan and they couldn't suddenly change tack and start saying oh yes we want this model because they'd been so vicious towards her they kind of that had to continue so I think that was part of the problem I also think and you know part of what I argue in the book is what Meghan and Harry were asking for and what they're doing is not actually that different from what the monarchy do anyway so if you think about you know how widely mocked they've been for being involved with Netflix for example or when they wanted to start that brand called Sussex Royal and there was they were absolutely ripped to shreds in the press for this as though it was something unthinkable and there was all these opinion pieces about you know how they were commercialising the royal family and it was really vulgar and all of these things. 
But actually, if you think about, you know, the monarchy have had relationships with the media forever. The coronation demonstrated that and, you know, their close relationship with the BBC even. And that was, you know, however many decades ago. And we can also see in things like how the monarchy have brands. So things like Dutchie Originals, you know, Charles's food brand and stuff. You know, this this happens. Royals go out and promote things and do brand promotions. You know, Zara Phillips has something with Rolex. It's, it's not unthinkable that that would happen. So my argument is that because, you know, because Meghan and Harry exited at that point, they kind of weren't within that fold anymore and they weren't within that protection. So suddenly the fact that they were making these commercial deals was obvious because they were being directly paid for doing paid public speeches. Whereas the royals aren't directly paid, but they do get financial gains in a way because the institution of monarchy is reproduced and therefore the the wealth of the monarchy is reproduced and all of those things. It's just much more indirect. But it's the same thing, essentially. So I think... You know, these those arguments are kind of scapegoating Meghan and Harry as though they're commercialising the royal brand when that's always been happening and always has been happening, but they just can't draw attention to the fact that's always been happening. So it's almost like Meghan and Harry were scapegoated. I'm not saying it was a, there was a purposeful attempt, you know, but it's certainly interesting that it's them that's been, you know, insulted for that, whereas monarchy were allowed to continue. It seems to me another example of the front stage backstage metaphor that you have that that certain activities are fine as long as you're not too blatant about them you can get on with them quite quietly but don't make a fuss don't you know don't let the papers write about it and I guess it also depends who you are and how you're perceived by the by the press but there are there are some things which are deemed you know acceptable ways to make money you know respectable and others which are seem to be a little bit tawdry and as you say that's that goes back a long way doesn't it yeah absolutely and there's certainly a level with Meghan and Harry I think of of sexism and classism and racism against Meghan for that and you can see that you know even in the way that people often bring up the fact that she was a suitcase girl on deal or no deal as though that was they talk about that as being really trashy well that's racialized and that's class and that's gendered right so there's kind of there's ways in which that's also mediated through Meghan Markle in a very particular way as well I think that implicates upon that but yeah, also, as you say, there's kind of a, in quote marks, respectable way of producing wealth and a, a non-respectable way. And how that divide is maintained and reproduced, I think, is quite interesting. The last thing I want to ask you, Laura, is something I, wa- I was wondering as I was reading the book, and it's maybe, it's maybe a very hard question to answer from outside, but let me, let me try and sort of frame it in any case. You've got this metaphor as the, of the family as a firm, and you talk about all their, their business dealings and the things which they're involved in, and how they're evolving, and how they respond to things like changes in media and all sorts of um, things like that. Wherein do you think the, the sort of intelligence lies? Is it a sort of a sort of responsive organism responding to stimuli? Or how do you think it evolves, changes and directs itself? If it was truly a firm, it would have a CEO who was making all these top level decisions and everything would sort of cascade from that and would have a board. Is that where the metaphor sort of slightly ceases to function so well? Or do you, we're not imagining that the Queen is sort of sitting planning strategically a five-year plan, are we? So is, is there a sort of devolution of of direction so that all these different parts and estates and so on are, are all sort of trying to interpret what they're reading from the centre in order to evolve policy that on the ground takes individual decisions and, and makes, you know, makes financial decisions? I mean, just how do, you, how do you sort of conceive it as a sort of functioning entity in in that sense where where is the intelligence as it were you know where's the where's the brain within it or is it a distributed brain yeah that's a really interesting question 
I think there's, two, there's kind of two things I want to say to that. I'm not sure it directly answers it, but I think this would be how I would conceptualise it. No, I'm not suggesting that the Queen sits there with a five-year plan, but there are people in that institution who know exactly what they're doing, right? So kind of the private secretaries, the communication secretaries, the people who work within the Crown Estates, you know, the directors of those, the directors of royal charities. These are experienced people. They have worked for very big corporations. A lot of the communications offices have worked for like the BBC or Sky or all of these things. So it's not like they don't know what they're doing. And I think that idea that kind of... Um, you know, that it just kind of, the, the monarchy just exists and it kind of just happens. It's part of that mythology because, you know, there, there are people in there making decisions. There will be people in there making the decision, you know, in a five-year plan for the social media, for example, that will be happening. So I think that's the, that's kind of the first thing to say that, you know, just, all right, maybe the Queen isn't making those decisions, but she's certainly been advised on those decisions and, and there is strategic things happening. The other thing I would say, which doesn't really answer the question, but I think is important, is my argument is that the monarchy always changes in order to stay the same. So I think the ultimate goal is kind of, you know, this this ongoing development and this ongoing engagement with different spaces in society is used in a way that is strategically useful in order to maintain an institution over time. So even if you think of it in terms of like royal visits, right, and royal charity visits, those are things that are very strategically planned by a team of people. They go out and they kind of do a recce of the site. They'll decide if it's suitable. They'll decide exactly who the royals are going to speak to. They'll have a five-year plan for where the royals are going to go and make sure that everywhere is being visited equally. And, you know, the Northwest has had a visit within the last year and all of these things. So this, this kind of strategy is happening. It's just maybe not happening over hundreds of years. I'm not suggesting, you know, someone was sat in 1500s kind of making Victoria decisions. Victoria had a secret document. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's maybe not happening at that level. And obviously it is quite a unique corporation in the fact that not many corporations have been going for that long and kind of, you know, withheld this, this many societal changes. But I think certainly at the level of like decades, there is that kind of strategic plan going on in order to maintain this this greater institution there has to be right there has to be otherwise it wouldn't exist right they've they, they, they kind of been outplanned or they've been outmaneuvered it would just have happened we're living in a very you know dynamic world so I think there is you know a version of that strategy happening and I think there are very intelligent people working for them that plan in this very particular way do you think they'll still be there in 50 years time <laughs> um honestly yes I do and that's a very depressing answer. Whether they'll still be there in the same capacity, I think, is a separate question. Whether it will kind of be a slightly remodelled version, I think, is a separate question. But for the, the amount of social change it would need to happen for a republic, yeah, I'm not sure that will happen. I would love to be proved wrong, though. <laughs> I was talking to Laura Clancy. Laura's book, Running the Family Firm, how the Royal Family Manages Its Image and Our Money is available in paperback from Manchester University Press. More information on their website. And there's more about Laura and her work on her page on the Lancaster University website. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 80 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you.